everyone, just before we get started, we wanted to let you know that we're going to be attending Fan Expo Canada this year. Fan Expo Canada runs from August 30th to September 2nd at the Toronto Convention Centre. We have a table in the Artist Alley and we're going to be selling books and merchandise and hope you can come down and say hello. See you then! Welcome back. This is our second episode of Historical Fantasy. And today we're going to talk about the Edo era. Well, we're going to briefly, briefly talk about the Edo era because there's a lot to cover, like over 250 years worth. But we're just going to talk about like the beginning. Yeah, how like the Civil War ended. And how, like, uh, in particular, like, uh, Tokugawa became shogun. Became shogun. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so I guess first we should introduce ourselves. My name is Guinevere Lee. And I am Noel. All right. Basically, around the same time that Europe was having its medieval age, Japan was also in a medieval age. The country was completely fractioned. There were just warlords or daimyos everywhere and they were all sort of fighting over their individual territories. Yeah, basically it was similar to the feudal system in Europe, but the difference is like uh, the centralized power that in that uh, in that time residing in Kyoto was like a very weak and just like a both emperor and shogun have like a very low control over all the territory and so like a uh, Everyone daimyo was almost kind of like a, like an independent country for itself. Yeah, Kyoto itself was like its own independent country. You know, the yeah. emperor claimed to be emperor of Japan, but really he was not even emperor of Kyoto. Uh, really, the shogun was emperor of Kyoto. Yes, I mean, like, um, he was more like a spiritual leader than a really like a ruler. And in that time, like, uh, the shogun was the general of the emperor armies and even have, like, a more power like the emperor for itself. In that moment, don't have a real control over all the country. Yeah, the shogun was basically the warlord of the country. <laughs> yeah, like, uh, back in days in the Heian area, like, the title of shogun was, like, not permanent and was, like, a given to the general in charge when the Japan fight like uh, the savage people of the north, like uh, when like uh, the area of Tohoku was not incorporated into the kingdom, like uh, they would have some wars with them, and like uh, the general of the armies was received the title of the shogun, but it was not permanent. So when the war ended, like uh, the general stopped being shogun. Was not until like uh, the century twelve when like uh, the title of shogun became permanent, became hereditary. Yeah, but even that, like, I don't have, like, a, the true power, like, the shogun become when the Edo area start. Yeah, so basically you had the emperor and the shogun who were in one small center of Japan, and around them were all these daimyos fighting with each other. Then one daimyo, a very, very small daimyo by the name of Nobunaga, he won a very decisive battle against one of the larger daimyos. And afterwards, he was sort of given a lot of street cred, I guess you could say. Yeah, like... Suddenly a, he had respect. Yeah, have like a, like a big war with the Takeda clan, that was one of the biggest like uh, clans in that, uh, in that time, if it was of the um, family that uh, have like the title of shogun before. 
So in that moment, like uh, the emperor, like uh, give him a lot of power, and she start the unification of the world, Japan, like uh, making like uh, the small clans become under the power of the of the emperor, but really it is under the power of the shogun. Yeah, well, basically Nobunaga went around and he just sort of started unifying all the provinces under his control. Two of the people who started following him were Ieyasu Tokugawa, which is a name we're going to remember for later, and Toyotomi Hideyoshi. Basically, Nobunaga gets to the point where he's as powerful as the shogun. Yeah, he received the title of shogun. After the big battle with the Takeda clan, she's become the shogun. So, yeah. Instead of like the Takedas, basically. Right, so the title of Shogun goes from Takeda to Nobunaga. Exactly. But Nobunaga does not have an heir. No. So when he died, like uh, he's like a right hand, like uh, Hidetomi to. Hideyoshi. Hideyoshi to Yotomi, <laughs> like uh, become Shogun, and she become like the labor of Nobunaga, and in that time he almost control like the most of Japan, only like a, some part of like a Tohoku and also like a Shikoku is not under. So because have like a situation stable, like a Japan start to put attention to Korea and then like a Toyotomi start a war to Korea in order for a first step to conquer China. During one battle, he was injured. So he returned to Japan and like a, this campaign stopped. And like uh, Toyotomi, like a uh, die after three months of being injured. Toyotomi have like a son that have for that time three years old. So like a uh, name like a uh, five wise men, forming a kind of council to like a uh, reign like a uh, in name of his child. One of these men was Ieyasu Tokugawa. Happened that Tokugawa have a different plans. So basically betray the other members of the council and like go to the war. War that he end and went like um, in the big battle, how is it called? Sekigahara. Yeah. Uh, so like in the big battle of Sekigahara, that is like a currently like the biggest battle like uh, happened ever like in the, in the country of Japan. He like become like a winner. Well, up to that point. We should say. I mean, it was the biggest battle in Japan up to then. No, it's even now. Even now? Yes. Well, don't... I mean, what about Okinawa? Does that not count? Okinawa was not really part of Japan. Wow. I mean, it's part of Japan now. And even that, like, we never have, like, 200,000 soldiers in Okinawa battle. No, really? No. I guess you're right. Okay. I mean, mean, what's super big even for the European standards? I mean, it was also, it was a really tense battle because basically you had three armies facing off each other and one of the armies was wavering which side it would support. Yes, correct. And this army was stationed up on the hill while Tokugawa and his, um, was it Mitsuhara? I don't remember the name, but well, it was like the loyalist to like um, Toyotomi. We should probably bring notes in when we do this. Yeah, I know. Yes. <laughs> well, you can see the loyalist. Yes, so it was Tokugawa Be- versus the loyalist because army. Because they are the three, the other three yeah. generals, like they are together. And the third army was the one representing the son of the Taiko, uh, Hideyoshi. Yeah. He was, he was the Taiko 
and not the shogun because he was a well not a peasant but he was a commoner yeah and he the reason why he was had so much power was because he joined as a foot soldier and he just managed to work his way up the ranks but because he wasn't of noble birth he was not allowed to be called the shogun anyway <laughs> that is like ironic because nobunaga was a commoner well he was a Daimyo. He was just a daimyo. Yes, like a was a daimyo, but the, fa- the father was a commoner, oh. so he was not really like a for like a noble, like a bloodline. And even that, he became probably the more important like a general in the history of Japan. Well, even more funny is that Hideyoshi, despite the fact that he was not of noble birth, he's the one who made the caste system pretty much set in stone in the Edo yeah. era. So afterwards, it became absolutely impossible to break out of your social status. So well, I think that's really strange. It is a lot of, like, a irony during this period because, yeah. like, uh, Tokugawa, like, uh, used, like, uh, a lot of, like, uh, fire, fire guns during the war. Yeah, they had matchlock rifles. Yeah, and then just after, like, a forbade any gunpowder in all the country during the whole entire Edo area. <laughs> yeah. So it is a lot of like a, like a different point of view when you are in power than when you are trying to like a, well, climb, I, climb I th- up. I think it's also a matter of these are the tactics we use to get in power, so we have to make sure nobody else does the same thing. Anyway, so this third army, which is representing the son of the Taiko, is up on the hill. And it's basically the leader is deciding which side they're going to support. And it was his decision to eventually support Tokugawa that Tokugawa's side managed to win. That's one of those amazing moments in history where it could have gone either way. And it was just up to one dude standing on top of a mountain just being like, who do I like better? You felt like a... When you read about this period, do you like realize that a lot of like people like change sides, even multiple times during the war, like like at the path of the war? Oh yeah, this shit's better than Game of Thrones. To anybody who like really wants a good idea of this, there's this great book I'm reading right now called Shogun: The Life of Tokugawa Ieyasu. It's by A. L. Sadler. And every chapter, it's just some family is betrayed by someone else. Even like Tokugawa, he's totally loyal to Nobunaga. And then Nobunaga gets word that Tokugawa's son is plotting against him. This is, it's completely unfounded and it's not true, but he orders the son to commit seppuku. So Tokugawa basically has to sentence his son to death in order to sh- prove to Nobunaga that he's loyal. Like this shit's just insane. And, and especially because like uh, Tokugawa initially was like loyal to Imagawa family. And when the Imagawa family like lost a big battle and he will disappear, he just take his army and just put in the side of Nobunaga. So. <laughs> well, one would maybe assume that he had a grudge against the Imagawa family because he was only loyal to them because he was taken as a hostage by the family. Like seriously, this is the greatest drama in in like about fifty years that you've ever ever heard about. And it all culminates to this one day in Sekigahara where he f- dis- defeats the loyalist army. 
He's then given the title of shogun, not immediately, but eventually the emperor recognizes his power. At this point, all of Japan is united, and the next 250 years is maybe the most peaceful time ever known in Japan, and that's when all, all the art and all the culture that you stereotypically associate with Japan... That's basically when it came to fruition. Like, that's when the geishas thrived and the tea ceremony. Like, and... the samurais. Like, the idea that we have already of the samurais is the late Edoera period. Oh, yeah. Like, uh, before that, like, uh, all of the Bushido, like, uh, code of rules don't exist at all. So, yeah, like, yeah. Uh, it, it is, like, a funny because, like, uh, when the samurais become samurais, is when they don't have any word. Yeah. The Edo era is just this very peaceful time that came right after an incredibly bloody time of civil war. And that is when the story, later in the Samurai, <laughs> takes place. That's right. It's time to transition into... Have you read Leda and the Samurai yet? Because <laughs> you should. So in the second chapter of Leda and the Samurai mm-hmm. has come out... I can't give too much away, but I think people have already clued into the fact that she's time-traveled. Yes. <laughs> I mean, like, if you read already the first chapter, I think you will really realize, like, uh, what will happen from yeah. now, right? Um, but basically, the time period that she finds herself in is the Edo era, and it is precisely the time we... S- tried our very best to describe to you. The Battle of Sakigahara has already taken place, but at this point in history, all of Japan isn't entirely united yet. That That's going to come a little bit later. So there's still a little bit of chaos in the world. Yeah, I mean, at that point, like, uh, the, like, the daimos, like, bang the knee, but, like, uh, they will take a couple, like, of decades until, like, uh, the shogun take uh, effective control for all the territory. Yeah, so if you liked this episode and you're curious to hear more, then you should check out the story Lita and the Samurai, and there'll be an ad for that later. For today, I think we just cover, like, uh, the Civil War time and... From now, we will start with the Edo period for itself. In the next podcast, in episode three, we're going to be talking about... You don't question why you're running through a forest of bamboo. You don't don't give yourself time (laughs) to think. You (laughs) run, you scream, you cry. You run and run and run. And you hope the man chasing you with a bow and arrow doesn't kill you. Lita and the Samurai is a tale of a modern girl in ancient Japan. Only available on Chanillo.com. That's C-H-A-N-N-I-L-L-O.com. Lita, a young woman who moved to Japan to escape her abusive family, is slowly adjusting to her new life. She's learning Japanese, making friends, and enjoying the summer festivals. On the day of the famous Tanabata festival, she finds a small shrine. But when she steps out of the shrine, she steps into Edo-era Japan. Trapped 400 years in Japan's past, what follows is half-fantasy, half-historical fiction. Is her coming here an accident? Or does it have something to do with the sudden appearance of European ships off the coast? Lita must discover how she ended up in this situation and how she can get back home, or if she even wants to go back. Lita and the Samurai updates bi-weekly on Mondays. You can read the first chapter for free on Chanillo.com. Once again, that's C-H-A-N-N-I-L-L-O.com. We were the first, and we will be the last. 
From Morgan James Fiction comes the exciting new historical fantasy Orope, The White Snake, by Guinevere Lee. The whispers of the gods have seen the vision, the gods destroying the world in a flood because the old ways have been corrupted and forgotten. Three are chosen, Tersh, Kareth, and Shadi, to go out and warn the world. The gods must be appeased. In Orope, the white snake, Tersh must leave her children and travel to Matawe, the kingdom in the mountains. She also must care for Kareth and keep him out of trouble. Kareth, told since birth that he is destined for greatness, has been expecting this moment. Certain that he is ready, he quickly discovers that his confidence and curiosity have a tendency to lead him into dangerous situations. Shadi finds himself traveling alone to find the people of the jungle, the Petsahalpa. The jungle seems like a paradise until he discovers the darker rituals practiced within. Samaki is a merchant who returns to Mahat to find his home destroyed, his father dead, and no one to buy his expensive cargo. With his first mate, Tuhark, the merchant struggles to move forward after his entire world has been upended. The stories of these four travelers intersect and entwine with each other as they move towards their destinations. Guided by visions, the whispers must use their wits to survive in these strange new lands that would rather use them as political pawns than listen to their warnings. Available in paperback, digital, and audio wherever books are sold. To learn more about Guinevere Lee and her writing, visit GuinevereLee.com. G-U-E-N-E-V-E. R-E-L-E-E dot com. And thank you for listening. Music provided by bensound.com.